This is the 966 episode 105. <laughs> Just triple figures. Triple yeah. figures. Is it 105? <laughs> I think it is 105. I think it's 105. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Listen, everybody, we're going to get that. We're going to smooth that out. Now that we know it's 105, next week will be 106. We'll get it. I will say out. this. I was looking when, because Amjad Ahmed is our guest this week, and awesome. I was going back to see what number, what which number, because he was April 2022 when we first had him on the show. And it's not easy, actually. You know, if you're either on the audio podcast, you know, it's on Transistor, but it's on all platforms and obviously our YouTube channel. It's not easy to, to just identify which episode it was um, in terms of numbers. So, yes, you know, we struggle with the numbers because <laughs> our guests have probably given up. But that's why I just say triple figures. That's interesting, too, because he was, as you mentioned, one of our first guests. And when we discussed the VC private equity venture fundraising landscape with Amjad in that episode, you know, that was kind of in a different year than this year has been for that landscape. So that is an interesting comparative conversation, Richard, yeah. if you had gone back and listened to it, it's it's a little bit less rosy than it was then, just like the rest of the uh, global economy. So um, yeah, as you, as you teased well there, we have a really good conversation with Amjad Ahmed coming up, BC guy, and he just knows the space really well. And it's a great conversation, a good update on, on everything going on there as we enter the fall of 2023. So just terrific. Um, we will be getting to the rest of the program in just a minute. I did want to read. So last week, our regular listeners and viewers know we had just a really good conversation with Gautam Sashital from... CAFT, the King Abdullah Financial District, the CEO of CAFT. And we've got a ton of feedback on that, understandably, uh, conversation. And so, well, we appreciate everybody listening and, and watching. Um, this one was uh, from Abdulaziz Abdo on YouTube. Always great to chime in with the 966. Thank you, Abdulaziz. Uh, we appreciate that. And this one is from David Kilvin. I think you may have seen this comment as well, Richard. Um, there's an important part in CAFT that has not been answered. I wish you guys had asked it, which is the suspended monorail that connects the financial district together because until now its status is ambiguous and we do not know whether this project will proceed or has been canceled. That is a good question. I wish we had answered that. I will ask, um, I'm sorry, I will ask um, Mr. Gautam that question soon because I am curious about that. I mean, you've, Richard, you've seen it around and it connects to the Metro Exactly. Um, but it doesn't look finished. And it's not, it, doesn't look, it, doesn't, it actually doesn't look like there's doing any work on it right now either. So I wonder if uh, what's up with that and what the status is. That may be part of that like air-conditioned, like connected sort of walkway between everything. And, um, and we're going to get to this in a second, but um, we're going to talk a little bit about the Giga pro projects in Riyadh and Knight Frank's comment that 98% of CAFT is done. So... So maybe the other, the remaining 2% is the monorail, but we also know that's not true either. So, um, but yeah, we'll, we will, uh, thank you, David, for that question. We will ask and try to follow up on that. Sorry, we did not ask it for that. And then Richard, this one from Trimex, um, on the Trimex. segment we did, yes, our boy, um, on the segment <laughs> we did on, um, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's comments to Fox news last week, uh, another segment that uh, got us a lot of feedback. He notes his comments about Vision 2040 as being the most intriguing for him. It shows they have no intention to stop. Uh, it will be interesting to see what the defining features of Vision 2040 would be in this situation. So, yeah, I mean, that, that 
I kind of glanced over that. That that is interesting. I mean, we talk about what happens after Vision Twenty Thirty, but kind of got to look at it from His Royal Highness, sir. You know, he's got a plan, and it extends. He's talked about uh, twenty forty before in terms of neom and the population. He hopes Saudi Arabia might reach. Yeah, I mean, these things are all going along. I'm, I don't want to tease it because you're talking about the uh, Knight Frank terrific report on Giga projects. But one of the fascinating things about that project, and, I, and you'll 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 get into this, is that some of these projects, their completion dates are past 2030. Um, you know, they're you know projected completion dates, uh, which is it's just interesting. I mean, it, the place is endlessly fascinating. Yep, the world will not stop. Uh, on January first, twenty thirty-one. Exactly. So well, let's give them, let's give them the year. Let's give them the year. So December thirty, you know, the end of the year, December. You know, all the twenty. But you're, oh yeah, well, you said twenty thirty-one. My apologies. I just stepped all over you. Sorry. No, it's okay. You're right. I had already given them the extra you year. Did. I don't yeah, know. If, you know, they're moving so quick. Uh, I don't know if they're going to need the. Well, extra I can't year, keep but... up with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I I agree, and it's it is you know seven years now into Vision twenty thirty. It's pretty, pretty impressive what's been done so far. So, but again, um, again, we've talked about it a million times on this show. Nothing, you know, whatever the completion percentage at in twenty thirty, it's it's beside the point. It's where they're headed. You mean it's not the world's super tall building, um, no, which is not, five know, miles if, high? If, you know, if, you know, I can see some. I can see some. You know, whatever they are, some some you know political accountants. You know, going well, twenty thirty. You haven't finished neon. You're a failure. Yeah, yeah. And one more thing before we get to your one big thing, Richard. Uh, congratulations on behalf of us both to the Bechtel team for completing and opening their new office and new regional hq in riyadh i saw some stuff on that on linkedin got the press release of course abdul rahman was there jake mum was there some great photos from that event we just want to say congratulations for all the success they're they're having there and and hello as well is it um do you think it's a nicer office space than ours uh, do you think that's well i don't i don't know they're they you know they're not into the frills and uh the wasteful cats and dogs. Yeah, exactly yeah. <laughs> i don't you know to answer your question i don't think so we've we've got a really beautiful spot I, you know but that's you know they're all business you know they they like to get the job done they don't like to waste any money or anything on extraneous uh exactly luxuries so uh but congrats to them Richard, let's get to it. What's your one big thing this week? Um, really interesting. Lots of choices this week, and maybe next week. I, I, I want to do one on esports, but this week I want to. We had a very interesting article come out in Al Monitor. If we haven't talked about Al Monitor before, I think we have. It's a great publication. It's really a, an informative, uh, fair, balanced uh, publication on all of the Middle East. So this was an article by Salam El Sayed uh, on Saudi Arabia's crypto economy let me basically just crib it for you saudi arabia ranked as the country with the highest growth volume of cryptocurrency transactions globally over a 12-month period according to new york-based blockchain analysis firm chain analysis this in its 2023 geography of cryptocurrency report the kingdom saw a 12 percent increase in crypto transaction volume reaching nearly 31 billion from july 2022 through june 2023 so that was a leading increase globally, followed Vietnam came in 11.6, Nigeria 9%, Spain 6.9%. So 
and now we're shifting to the MENA region. Since 2019, the MENA region is the sixth largest crypto economy globally, valued at 30, $390 billion. Um, for perspective, uh, North America is $1.22 trillion, Western Europe's $1.07 trillion. So obviously it lags there, but it's interesting because it's considered MENA, again, the crypto market, it's considered the fastest growing globally, again, from July 2021 through June 2022, receiving uh, $566 billion in cryptocurrency, which is 48% higher than the year before. This is interesting. Um, according to Kim Grauer, who's director of research for Chainalysis, um, this growth, 48% growth, is especially striking because it was in the midst of, and you know this, solution, a, a really bearish crypto market. I mean, uh, the, the total value fell from more than $2 trillion in January 2022 to a about 800 billion last December. Um, so it's been a it's been a sort of a brutal time for crypto overall. But Mina growing nicely, Saudi Arabia growing faster than anywhere. Again, um, according to the chain analysis report, the Mina region saw a rise in crypto adoption given its high youth populations transacting online, need to overcome economic hurdles such as sanctions and devalued currencies, and due to the impact of clearer regulatory frameworks in some countries. Again, according to the chain analysis report, um, leading the way in terms of, of, of sort of the regulatory environment is the UAE. Um, Mazen Selhab was chief market MENA strategist uh, for the global on online investment and trading firm BD Swiss said, uh, the numbers show that this is quote, the numbers show that 35% of the UAE population are investing in crypto, one of the highest percentages in the world. And so they, UAE, along with Singapore, um, essentially have the highest public crypto adoption rate globally. In uh, Saudi Arabia, returning to Saudi Arabia, again, Salhab with BDS Swiss, a BD Swiss rather. Um, he quote he notes that SAMA, Saudi Arabian Monetary Agency, has not embarked on a similar regulatory journey as the UAE. It's it's uh, yet its fast growing adoption rate and its position as the Arab world's largest economy will make it a competitive market to watch out for the region. Quote this is uh, Salab. There's a growing interest among young Saudis in crypto. Young Saudis make up the majority of the country's population in crypto buyers. He said. Then you'll see you've seen this, Lucian. He said, quote, the traders in Saudi Arabia are risk takers, not only in the crypto asset market, but across the board. This is the best scenario that crypto firms are looking for. Um, so, uh, you know, the conclusion here is that, you know, Sama is unlikely to add new crypto regulations anytime soon. But the kingdom's economic momentum sort of coupled with that, uh, the regional leaders, UAE, and also coupled with the, the sort of the habit and the inclination of a very young investing population uh, bodes well for crypto and sort of decentralized finance industry in general in Saudi and the region going forward. Just this podcast title is going to get so many comments on our different various pages. Oh, yes, that's so true. many people love commenting about crypto and uh different investment opportunities it's probably the biggest comment that we <laughs> I get i think a lot that. of them are bots but i think they just realize like hey there's a lot of people there's a large audience here so let me just yeah. 
let me just quickly mention a new coin that I've come out with. <laughs> uh, no, I think this is I think this is really good. Just a few thoughts. One is, you know, Web three has kind of become this like catch all term, and you know that includes you know blockchain and then cryptocurrencies, NFTs, things like that. You know, it's sort of got a bit of a bad name right now after FTX and that collapse, and then some of the other sort of big scandals that have happened in the industry, the the hype that led up to it during, you know, the pandemic leading really, and then collapsing with FTX's collapse. And, you know, it really directly affects what we're going to be talking about with Amjad Ahmed next, which is the VC ecosystem, not just in the region, but globally, you know, people got really burned on Web3 investments. And there's a little bit of hesitation about Web3 and, and cryptocurrencies and blockchains and all of that because they sort of seem like, oh, it was a thing. And, you know, the hype is the hype is over and Bitcoin isn't going to be a, a million dollars and, um, you know, things like that. But I do think it is here to stay and it's permanent. It's just not, you know, now you have AI as the chic investment and the chic thing that is going to change the world. You know, two years ago was Web3. But it is interesting to see that, you know, the region is embracing the technology cautiously and you have to applaud them for that because when it was being hyped and was the next big thing, they could have leaned in a lot harder and would have therefore gotten burned a lot harder as well. And I think their sort of measured approach to this and um, and we'll talk about this again with Amjad, but their interest in making it region wide and collaborating with their neighbors, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait, um, Qatar, Bahrain, et cetera. I mean, making sure that they're a little bit on the same step is a good idea. So I, I like this, Richard, and I think it's really interesting. I am also a little bit concerned as well because the region does kind of run a little bit behind the globe when it comes to this stuff. So if they are the fastest growing, hopefully they don't experience the same sort of issue that the West experienced. Um, not the West, really. I mean, FTX and the other firms in China. So, yeah. um, I, 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 you know, I love cryptocurrencies and I love them less than I did before, but uh, <laughs> they, they are, I think that it is the future, but I don't think it's some, I don't think it needs to be some gold rush or some overhyped thing that is making million millionaires overnight. So it's, it's an actual application that can be used if it's, if it's used properly. I see the next, well, and you know, FTX obviously bid it. Binance is having trouble. Um, one of the, in this article, one of the things they point out is that the guardrails in the UAE are pretty strong and it's, it's helped with investor confidence. Um, you know, I've always been suspicious about uh, crypto and NFTs and anything like that. I think the next, I think the the next big thing, the I think the really important next step is uh, cent, decentralized um, currency, central central bank currency, so digitized central bank currency, and that I think will transform a lot of a lot of banking and a lot of uh, transactions and cost of transactions and that sort of thing. So, so I don't know that I don't know the area super well, but. You know, I've always shied away from something I don't understand. I never understood it. <clears throat> Seemed very notional to me, but I think it is true. You have in, in Saudi, you have you have significant percentage of the population with some money with a very high tolerance for risk. 
and you can see why you know a, a crypto you know if crypto might be attractive here because it's it you, you need to have some a little bit of i won't say the term but you gotta you gotta have a tolerance for risks to 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 dive into this yeah or just you don't care if you lose all your money. It's <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. the same thing. Yeah, exactly. But you can afford to be, you know, take risks. You and I can't do that. Yep. Never invest what you can't afford yeah. to lose. That's yeah. the number one axiom in investing. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think just sort of to add to what you were saying, I think that there was a period like earlier, maybe in 2023, where people were expecting all the major cryptocurrencies on global exchanges to go right back up to where they were again and blow past that. And you didn't see that, but you also didn't see them go back down to zero. So like there is sort of this appetite for it. It's just not as chic and you know, it isn't like driven by sort of mania, which is good, uh, which is definitely good. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, looking, keeping our eye out for Saudi coin. <laughs> And, and all those um, crypt, all, all those crypto comments on this segment. Yes, thank you for all of your comments. We will <laughs> not be investing in whatever you're pitching. However, uh, we appreciate any and all comments that we get on all of our <laughs> channels. Um, we just ask that you be, as always, respectful of other people uh, in the comment section. So, yep, uh, good one, Richard. My one big thing, and you teased it, and I'm glad you did. It's a short one today, but. Um, Knight Frank re released a another report on Saudi Arabia and an update on the progress of top level figures of Saudi Arabia's giga projects. This one is available online and, and published by our homie Faisal Durrani, partner and head of Meta <laughs> Research on the Global Real Estate Firm. He is awesome. He's been on the podcast twice, I think, at twice, least twice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it follows on some other reports done this year on the residential and commercial real estate markets in the kingdom. Um, you know, we talked about this as well earlier this episode, we had Gautam Sashital uh, on the 966 last week to discuss the challenges and opportunities he's facing. And this report, which is from uh, Knight Frank, and it, you know, it's only a few pages long, but those pages are absolutely jam packed with information. And the amount of information and the digestibility of the data is really second to none. It's sort of their hallmark of making it like fun to read about these sort of big projects and, and a lot of this I mean, fairly granular data about the residential and commercial real estate markets in the kingdom. So the firm reviews how the total value of real estate and infrastructure projects since the launch of Saudi Arabia's NTP, the National Transformation Plan, in 2016 has crossed $1.25 trillion, which is a lot of money. Um, and this is a little bit of a quote from this report. The phenomenal transformation in 2022's fastest growing major global economy is clearly visible across the entire urban landscape with the kingdom's giga projects, projects set to deliver a new urban future for Saudi Arabia through a transformed and vastly expanded residential office, retail, hospitality, and industrial offering designed to support the projected population growth, which is expected to top 50 million by 2030. Those are government forecasts. Um, yeah, so I just, this is, it's going to be a shorter one big thing. My one big thing is this document and, uh, my recommendation that you check it out because, you know, when you get information like this, that is presented visually and it helps you understand all the different things in this case that are, that's going on in Saudi Arabia and the, the, all the developments, the giga projects and not just by project, but broken down by location is enormously helpful. Um, and I love that they have, and I'm going to, 
include some of the graphics here for you guys to see, but they have this tracker graphic that identifies not just the total cost and size of these projects, but also the percentage to completion, the amount already spent on construction. So you'll see, for example, the new Maraba project has a $50 billion contribution to GDP figure with, it doesn't have anything for completion. They haven't broken ground yet, but you just kind of get a sense, like looking at this, you get the full picture of everything going on. So I hope they keep this going and make this a, a biannual thing, just updating it to, to, to be able to be useful for everybody because it, it is cool. It's very cool. And, and on that last point, like for Neom, it has project value 500 billion, then total value of commission projects to date. 237 billion. I mean, do you, do, you, do you ever watch the modern modern family? I mean, we were a modern family family, you know, when it first came out, we used to watch that all the time. Are you familiar with it? I, I have not watched it. Ah, so yeah. am I, am I in for a treat? <laughs> no, but it did. It, it may be lost on you, but, but Phil Dumphy, who's the dad in the family, you know, and he's a realtor, realtor. And he used to always get upset because he said, no, I don't just sell houses. I know, you know, I know everything about my community. I know the school district. I know the commercial density. I know the demographic. I know the traffic patterns. Every time I see one of these Knight Frank reports, I'm just blown away by how much information it conveys and they include because it's not just real estate. It's almost everything you want to know about what's going on in Saudi Arabia and the contracting and the demographics and growth and and where money's being spent, obviously, giga projects in this one. You know, I, as you say, our homie, uh, Faisal Doani, has, has been a, a, you know, a terrific guest, and we'll have him on again. But these are tremendous resources. And uh, I can't say enough how much, and you're right, they are fun to look at. I, I want to do a teaser here. It's interesting because it breaks it out. There's an introduction, and there's a lot, everything you talked about. But they they focus on Western Saudi Arabia, which is interesting because if you read the Seustic Review, they just did a big announcement about the Sauda development project down in the Asir. Um, and they talk about Riyadh. Coming very shortly, I think fourth quarter this year is going to be a, a huge initiative for the Eastern province. So this is going to you know, this will expand to the whole country where they're, you know, very strong and aggressive and, and uh, well-funded initiatives to develop every aspect, every corner of Saudi Arabia. Um, but again, these Knight Frank reports are, are unlike any other. They're really terrific. Just in Riyadh, $229 billion total value of, of projects, uh, commissioned projects value is 75 billion, but we're talking 241,000 residential units, 20,000 hotel keys, 2.8 million square meters of, of retail, 3.6 million square meters of office space. That's, I mean, that is staggering development and that's all happening right now. So, and as you mentioned, this report doesn't just focus on Riyadh, it's the whole country and it is all over, which is amazing. Well, this one, this one's just Riyadh and Western. Not, you know, it, it doesn't, it, right. Eastern right. province will be coming for sure. Right, right. Uh, but you have most of the major uh, yes. well, giga projects and all that are, are on the Western side, which is. Uh, well, which I, is sorry, you know, your, your point is accurate. I mean, there's not much to report on right now in the Eastern province. And I think that'll change if we're looking, you know, a year, two years down the road. Well, wait for Vision 2050 to be launched, and that is, that'll be once these gig projects <laughs> no, are built, we, we'll be looking elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you, you, I, I, I thoroughly recommend Modern Family. Whenever you get, if you get into it, you'll get into it. It's great stuff. Well, I'm about to embark on an absolutely yeah, there you go. incredible 
uh, run of very long flights coming up here, Richard. So I will I will put that. I want to think about queue. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm like David Putty of Seinfeld. I just sit there in the seat and stare off for twelve hours and <laughs> Putty. <laughs> high five. Um, yeah, high five. Um, <laughs> let's get to it. Let's get to our conversation with Amjad Ahmed from uh, the Atlanta Council uh, Venture Capital. It's just he's. You guys are going to love this. We, we think you will love all of our conversations, uh, but uh, this one's really good. He's, he's engaging and, and great to speak with. I'm Judge the Bomb. He's great. Enjoy. We are pleased to welcome back onto the 966, Mr. Amjad Ahmed, venture capitalist and seasoned investment professional with extensive experience in VC and private equity in emerging markets. Amjad is also chairman and founding director of the Empower ME initiative at the Atlantic Council, a program which empowers entrepreneurs, women, and the private sector in the region and which oversees, in collaboration with Georgetown University, the Win Fellowship, a fully sponsored year-long program for female entrepreneurs in the region. Amjad also sits on the board of directors for several companies in the U.S. and across the region. Welcome back, Amjad. Nice to see you again. Good to see you. Thanks, Rashid. Hey, wonderful to have you back. I, I have to share with you, Amjad, when we you were with us April 2022, we had only, we we launched this show in October 2021. We sort of went to weekly not long before we had you on. And I remember I was, Lucian was here in DC. I was in uh, New York at a NEOM event. Um, and that episode, it was the first sort of indication to me that we had something. Because um, oh. the response was outstanding. And as I said, we had got, we had sort of, we were ironing out our format. You know, we, we had recently gone to weekly and the response was outstanding. And I can remember going, wow. This is a topic everyone likes about. This was a great guest. You know, let's see if we can keep doing this. But anyway, so so you gave you gave at least me tremendous hope very early on. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. But it was all you, uh, Richard. Uh, it's, uh, I, I listened to the program and 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 it's excellent. So job well done. That's uh, wonderful, wonderful. And we want to, we're here. We want to talk about the VC and investment in the region and specifically in Saudi Arabia. But before we do that, we have to. Uh, get your, you know, let's give you some space to talk about your Empower ME program um, that you're sure. doing. Uh, an extraordinary initiative. It's especially important to us as it happens, you know, just recently guests, we had Omar Sheikh, uh, CEO of MENA for PepsiCo on, who is, they're very much right. involved. We had Dan Al-Ajlani, who is the co-chairman of the Women in Business for AmCham KSA, as well as you know, a business woman in her own right, very successful business woman. So these are all people who you have drawn, you know, you've networked and you're sort of at the very, you know, center of the, the spider web, as it were, of, of this tremendous initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, uh, thanks for that. You know, this is an initiative that's near and dear to my heart. Um, we started it roughly three years ago. And what I really wanted to do is create these bridges between this great country, the U.S., that gave me so much and, and the region where you know, uh, I, I come from and my heritage and my parents come from. Um, and to do it in, in, let's say, a more positive way. You know, unfortunately, we, we only hear about uh, lots of negativity about the Middle East, uh, especially, uh, you know, on this side of the pond. And I, I wanted to bring a new narrative um, to that discussion. You know, we talk a lot about politics. We talk a lot about security. We talk a lot about energy. 
but I felt like there was this huge gap of great things that were happening and people that were doing such phenomenal work that was missing. Um, you know, I've been investing in the region for two decades. I saw the power of what can happen when you invest and you give opportunities to entrepreneurs to create wealth and jobs and, and it's replicable and it can be done. Um, so the initiative focuses on empowering the private sector. And, you know, what we try to do is say, look, here are the things that are working. How can we multiply them? How can we do more of this? Uh, here's some sort of general guidelines and advice on policy about, you know, policy that can actually move the needle in this area. And we focus on, you know, the three groups. We focus on entrepreneurs as, as, a, as a body. We focus on women because women in the region are very educated, um, but they just are not given the opportunities. Their participation rate is, is rather uh, low. So can they get more opportunities? Uh, and, and that in itself can create phenomenal GDP growth, right? Uh, you're igniting uh, part of the population that's been underutilized. And then last but not least is the private sector in general. What, you know, sectors, uh, how can you drive more business? And it just happens that during the time of launching this initiative, the region sort of had this awakening that, hey, we don't want to fund jobs anymore. You know, the government cannot take on more of, of, these, of this creation of jobs. We need another engine. And what better engine than entrepreneurship? So how can we drive more of that? So in a way, we got lucky uh, that, you know, the initiative aligned with things that were happening in the region at the time. Um, the, the most successful program that's come out of the uh, Empower Middle East program has been what we call the WIN Fellowship or Women Innovators Fellowship. And it's been tremendous. You know, last year we started with Saudi only 33 women, highly selective uh, program. They go through a one-year training, sort of mini MBA with Georgetown University. During that process, we hold workshops on policy issues that they care about to get their voices heard. We highlight them. And the culmination of that is the top graduates get to come to the U.S. for a roadshow where you know U.S. policymakers, U.S. investors, U.S. companies can hear from them directly rather than reading in the paper about what's happening in the region. Um, and I can't tell you that trip was such a tremendous opportunity. I, I was overwhelmed by the response on both sides. The, um, you know, the, the women themselves love the opportunity of meeting all these phenomenal people, but then to see the reactions on the other side, you know, uh, and, and you saw barriers just coming down. So it was phenomenal. This year we've expanded it to um, the UAE and Bahrain. So now we have 86 women all together. Next year, we're hoping to add two more countries to make it five. And of course, every year we're doing the same program in the existing countries. So you can see that the snowball effect of this is, is fairly dramatic. And what our vision is that 10 years from now, you have a WIN Fellowship alumni that's you know, leading companies, um, having their own businesses, and, and really uh, a pool of, of great human resource that, you, that we can all tap into that are doing phenomenal things. That's, that's the ultimate vision. That's, I, when we were communicating prior to this episode, I had mentioned that it seemed like the program had really taken off. I had no idea. That's, a, that's amazing. 
I mean, you're well on your way to creating a really extensive network. We, yeah, I have to say that that was sort of the vision, right? Is that you can't, you know, we didn't want these programs to be, you know, you see a lot of these programs, they're in one and out, right? right. They, they happen, it's kind of like a factory and then they disappear. We said, no, the power of this is creating that pool of candidates, really upskilling them during that year, but then having them hold on to this as they go forward. So the alumni network for us is a really powerful side of this. Um, and honestly, we couldn't do this without sponsors, right? And, and people, some of the people you mentioned, like Pepsi has been, I have to say, phenomenal. Um, you know, they support us in year one. Year two was easy. They said, we're in again. And we hope, you know, they stay with this program for as long as it survives. Um, you know, the U.S. Uh, embassies around the region have been the cornerstone, you know, uh, funder. And they've been phenomenal. Um, you know, they really enjoy the, the, the program. The ambassadors are very engaged. You know, Martina Strong, who yeah. is now the UAE, yeah, the U.S. You, ambassador you can follow her to the UAE. <laughs> Yeah, look, honestly, I, I, I see her as a co-founder. Uh, she was so supportive in the Saudi program uh, when she was the Chargé d'Affaires there. And she was phenomenal. I mean, she really uh, took this under her wing. She was super supportive. And, and now, you know, she goes to the UAE. We already have a program there. She's definitely going to uh, be involved with our fellows. Uh, and I actually just saw a video today of her uh, she, she actually met one of the fellows at, at her welcome party and she took a picture and she put it out there. So, so it's exciting, you know, and, and we're hoping this goes to other Arab countries uh, because I think one thing that we recognize is that connectivity between women as well across mm -hmm. the countries. It's tremendous. Um, I, I mean, I can't tell you in the background what, what's been happening ha has really given me a lot of joy uh, just to see people talking, people helping each other out with uh, opportunities, investors, w whatever it is, network. Um, and then, uh, you know, people flying to each other's countries to come to these workshops. I mean, it, it's been, it's been quite, quite interesting. Um, and, and I hope, I hope you get to meet some of them when they come and do the roadshow uh, next year. So the program, the second year ends uh, in, in May. And we're hoping to have um, the roadshow at that time. And we'll have approximately 18 to 20 women from the UAE, Bahrain, and, and Saudi here in Washington during that time. So it'll be, it'll be a, a few exciting events. So I'll, I'll make sure you're, you're added to that. Well, awesome. we'd love to. And you know we'd love to have them on the 966. And Lucian, you were saying before we started recording that Amjad is – basically a celebrity in you're like a celebrity yeah you're like a celebrity <laughs> especially in the vc system, ecosystem over there for sure <laughs> uh, i'm i'm gonna have both of you uh do a private zoom with my daughters <laughs> so 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 they can hear this uh i'll t i'll tell you guys a, a funny quick funny story so uh, i think you saw the article i i recently wrote for the imf the the uh, uh finance and development magazine um, so I showed it to to my daughters, and they said, "Oh, what's this?" I said, "This is kind of like the Vogue for finance." <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, cool! So, <laughs> that that's when they said, "Oh, that's cool." I was like, "Okay, good." Uh, so so I tried to draw a parallel. So, and, and so so 
So Richard, what I'll tell them about this uh, episode is that you're the, like the Taylor Swift of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Can I be Travis Kelsey in that situation? Yeah. I want to be on the phone. <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I want to date you even fake date. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, that's wonderful. And that's and again, congrats, Amjad. I'm glad we, we had you, a, a chance to spend some time on that program because it's really valuable. By the way, I, I, I can't take all the credit. We, I have such a great team. Uh, of of ladies that I work with, you know, Lynn and the Brass from the Atlantic Council, hugely amazing team. Um, and and you know, f- to 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 see all that we can do just as a small group, uh, it, it's really thanks to their hard work. Yes, yes. Let's let's turn to investment. Um, you're one of your many hats, and and I'd like I know Lucian spent a lot of time in this space, but I'd like to start with the big picture. And, sure. and, you know, I know you, you look at MENA, but we want to look at MENA and KSA as well. But, and, and as you know, it had a roaring in terms of VC uh, activity, it had a roaring 2022. Right. Uh, the first half of 2023 has been much slower. Can you sort of give us a, uh, you know, an overview of, of what the VC ecosystem looks like right now in the region and specifically Saudi Arabia? Sure, sure. So on, on a macro level, um, you know, I think you've seen a lot of the data. You know, what we've seen is that venture investing generally has has slowed down, and and this is globally, right? Um, and specifically, I would say growth part has really, uh, I would say, collapsed. Um, and the reason being is, I think you saw just tremendous valuations during 2020 and 2021. And late stage investors were really hurt by this uh, because those valuations did not hold up once the world changed, shifted. Um, and I think there was an underestimation of the sensitivity of venture to the macro environment, to interest rates. You know, we lived in a world of low interest rates for a very long time. I mean, since 2008, really. And a lot of venture investing really accelerated during that period because you had cheap money. Um, frankly, there was nowhere to put your money to get a return. So people started going riskier and riskier on the asset class scale. And venture is one of the riskiest, right? Um, so you had a lot of money come in when interest rates were nothing. The minute interest rates started accelerating, and this has been the steepest rise in interest rates in our history. Um, investors just recalibrated what they were investing in. They said, well, I don't need to go risk anymore. I'm getting 5% in treasury. <laughs> you know, um, you know, you put your money in a savings account today in the US, you're getting four and a half, five percent That's pretty good, right? Uh, when, we, when you used to earn zero. So that shift kind of sucked the air out or sucked the capital out of, out of venture capital. And the region was not immune to this, right? Because regional investors are global investors. I mean, you know, someone sitting in Saudi Arabia, a family office in Saudi Arabia is, is exposed to the globe, right? They have equities, they have debt, they have private equity. So they were also affected. Um, so you saw a pullback by investors locally. And you definitely saw a pullback by international investors who were playing in our markets, Right. And it's what I call the hot money, right? Hot money goes into emerging markets when interest rates are low and they step out when interest rates are high, right? Because 
you know, emerging markets are a riskier um, uh, investment. So the cost of capital, when it rises, the money comes out. And that's what's happened. So um, we, we are seeing a, a pullback by international investors in the local market. The local investors are there. They're staying steady. But again, they've also reallocated. They're not you know, as aggressive as they once were. I would say the most stable investors in the region today are the sovereign wealth funds. And they're the most stable for a great reason, which is for them, this is not a one-year, two-year story. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's what I would call a transformation in their economy, right? They're looking for diversification. And they've been some of the best supporters of the ecosystem locally. Um, but in the end, we need private investors. We need more private investors in the local market. We need private investors from international to come into our markets. Um, until that happens, I, I think you'll see this dramatic volatility on an ongoing basis. And can you, would you anticipate the activity, not only in terms of numbers of deals, but, you know, total, total value of deals would sort of bump along until interest rates moderate? Look, or, I, or, or, I, or could it, can it sort of regenerate even in this environment? Sure. So look, I think this is where I see a divergence between a market like the U.S. and, and, and the markets in the Middle East. For the markets of the Middle East, this is, I mean, I hate to be dramatic here, but it's fatal because the, the ecosystem is still nascent, right? We were still at the early stages and we start seeing all this exciting momentum and it just like, you know, took the air out at this stage, right? Um, the U.S. has seen these ups and downs and it'll come back, right? The U.S. is a robust market. The investor base here is dramatically uh, wide, um, sophisticated investors. Um, you know, it's going to come back. Um, and, and, and Instacart was a great example. Like, you know, once we digest that valuations are, are, normalized now they're no longer the 2020 and 2021 people will come back into the market right for mina it's too early we we need that momentum to continue um and and it's it, it concerns me uh, it concerns me now that um you know we've had a lot of seed funding happen over the last couple of years we've had a lot of a rounds but honestly raising money today is really challenging um and you know, we, these companies need fuel to continue to grow and the ecosystem needs the fuel to continue to grow. And I think the sovereigns plugging this gap is just not going to be enough. I mean, there's only so much that they can do. They're supporting new funds. They're trying to entice new investors in, but we need private capital. Um, you know, and, and I think this is where um, I would maybe tweak the model a bit, um, you know, because I think they need to entice LPs, they're, in, they're trying to build GPs today. So they're trying to build new funds to operate in the market. But somehow we need to attract someone sitting in New York to say, come and invest in a fund in Saudi, right, as an LP. And I just don't see that happening today. And the question is, well, what kind of incentivization she would give that investor? Is it you know, we'll take the hit on the first loss or, you know, we'll guarantee some kind of minimum return. I don't know, but I think there needs to be some enticement for LPs to, to come and start investing in regional funds. 
Well, you, you know, uh, so that's a, that's a, a good segue into the piece that you wrote for the, you know, the Vogue of, of international investing, <laughs> the IMF blog, <laughs> you know, which I, we recommend this. This is just actually publication date this month, September, 2023, really, really excellent piece that um, uh, did for the IMF finance and development blog outlining essentially the potential for the fintech center sector rather. Yes. Um, but, you know, asking, is there a better way to regulate this to help unleash this potential? And I, I, I'm gathering this is what you're alluding to. Um, yeah, I, I think when you when you come to uh, fintech uh, just as, as, a, as a sector, um, there are a lot of interesting dynamics, right? I mean, I think, you know, we're in a region that is, um, in, in, depending on which country you're looking at, is underbanked. Um, we have, you know, some countries with very stodgy, semi-governmental, um, very centralized powerhouse banks that, you know, um, might not need to operate as competitively and as efficiently as you would in, a, in an open market, which, you know, causes uh, fees to be a bit higher and, and, you know, services not to be uh, great. So, you know, to bring on competition, you, you need to open up the market a bit. And, and what better competition than technology and, and going digital to create more inclusion across the board, right? Um, but if not everyone is playing on the same level playing field, then it doesn't work. So to me, that's number one, is you need regulation that says, look, we don't care whether you're a local bank, a new fintech company, or an international bank, this is what you need to do to operate in this market, right? And create a level playing field that's open and affordable um, for new upstarts to come in and compete. No one is saying to give them an advantage, but have a level playing field. Um, I think two is, and, and this is not fintech specific, this is really region specific. One of the primary issues why you don't see LPs running to invest in MENA funds is that jumping from Saudi Arabia as a business, which is a great market, it's a big market, but at the end of the day, it's in the context of you know, the world, it's not a huge market. It's not the US and China and India. So people have to go regional, right? So, but for a startup to jump from Saudi Arabia to Egypt, it's literally like starting a brand new company, right? With costs, with time, with effort, with people. I mean, it's, it's really, it's not as simple as going from New York to California. And until the region, I think, becomes, you know, a little bit more integrated and I think the best way to do that is to have some kind of regulatory harmonization to say, look, regulator, let's talk. You know, would you guys accept, you know, a startup that is licensed by us to operate in your market or at least go through a slimmed down version of getting a, a license? You know, how can, we, how can we all work together, right? And this is not a zero sum game, right? Everyone is gonna gain, you know? That startup is going to go to that other country and create jobs and opportunities and so on and so forth, you know, and it's going to help its home country where it's headquartered. So 
But I think there's too much zero-sum game thinking. Like, if I let these guys come in, then it hurts my companies and so on and so forth. Um, I think uh, human capital is, is, is a serious issue, uh, especially in fintech. Um, you know, fintech, I think the mistake that, um, you know, VCs made and, and also startups made in fintech is that, hey, this is just like retail. You know, we can, we can launch a company and make a lot of money. Fintech is more complicated. You know, it's a highly regulated sector. Uh, you're dealing with money. Um, you know, it's, if you want to build a true fintech company, you do need some subject matter expertise. Um, and I think the more it scales, the more that expertise is needed. Um, so in, specifically in this sector, I think the, the talent gap is, is even more significant. I mean, we have a talent gap, period, but it, I think it's more significant in, in, in financial services. But the opportunity is tremendous. Um, there's so much opportunity for fee capture. Um, and, you know, McKenzie did a great report about the fee pool in the region. I mean, it's massive, the fee pool from banking. And the penetration of fintech is, is minute. I mean, it's, it's, you know, maybe a couple of hundred basis points. So it has a long way to go. It's um, it's it's always interesting because we cover Saudi Arabia specifically. We look at the region as well, but the the Gulf states, certainly UAE and Saudi and others, are moving at a little different pace. Um, right. So you know there are there's some feel good stories about you know uh, uh, digitization and and penetration of of digital banking and that sort of thing. But you note in your IMF blog that only seventeen percent of consumers in the Middle East actually use digital banking. So. You know, it's a, it, it it's a hard to keep track. Sometimes we get all excited about this progress here. They're hitting metrics here in terms of Vision 2030, but in the larger region, which impacts the whole ecosystem, it's not the same story. And that's interesting that your point that, you know, if they can, if they can uh, sort of formalize a, a more integrated regulatory environment, you, you could get this synergies. Look, you really can. I mean, I mean, Look, at the end of the day, um, by the way, you mentioned the 17 number. Keep in mind that this is a region that has very high mobile penetration rates. So this is not a region where people don't have mobiles. They do have mobiles and they do have smartphones. So the smartphone penetration is, is fairly high. So, so that's even, you know, that, that, that statistic becomes even more glaring that only 17% are using, are using, uh, banking products. I think the integration piece of this is such a crucial piece. And the IMF has done a lot of great writing on this and McKenzie and, and others. Um, so I won't hash it out, but it, it's a critical issue. I think if it, it's, it's easy to say we want scalable startups, you know, but it's much harder to execute on that when it's so difficult to go from one country to the other. Um, and you know, look, again, we're talking generality here. Some of them are bringing barriers down, but I can tell you it's still, it's still challenging and costly, um, which again, it, it, this is all connected, right? It goes back to the investors. If I'm an investor and I say, well, I can invest in China, India, US, why, why would I go and put my money in such a difficult, challenging environment where you know, making the same return might be really, really tough. 
right? And you don't even and you don't even know the market either. It's like you're you're on the outside right. looking in. Yeah. So right, right. Yeah. And 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 the sad thing is, the sad thing is, the potential is tremendous. Like, sure. The potential is great because the, the beautiful thing about the Middle East is that is that there not only do you have digitization happening. But you have sectors that have been so underdeveloped for, for a lot of reasons, right? We had a lot of sort of, you know, uh, elites capturing different sectors. You didn't really have competition, so on and so forth. You know, very closed economies. And now they're opening. And, you know, some of these countries are not poor countries, right? I mean, you, you said you cover Saudi. Show me another time in history that a middle-income country middle-income per capita country has opened up like this. This is not a, this is, you know, this is not Singapore that was poor becoming rich. This is a country that already had a pretty decent per capita income, but through its own policies and regulatory environment and other things was sort of keeping itself down, right? Or, you know, so sort of suppressing its own potential. And then it opened up I mean, it's... we 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 kick ourselves, pinch ourselves. I don't know what do we do, Lucian, because we've been interested in Saudi for a long time. But to be interested and involved in doing a program like this at this juncture in history is extraordinary because it really is a unique story. Very, very, and 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 so 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 sorry to uh, to deviate, but it's I wanted to highlight that potential. It's a different story to say, well, don't invest because there's no potential. The thing is, there is potential, but there are these hurdles and challenges that we really do need to think about. And they're all interconnected, which makes it more complicated, but they are interconnected. Let's talk about uh, this current situation and the downturn in, in, uh, in VC investment in general. As you know, well know, the preponderance of, of investment has been towards fintech and e-commerce. Um, has do you see an evolution? Do you see a uh, you know a, the field sort of opening up a little bit for other sectors? Um, can you make money in other sectors? Is there is there entrepreneurs? Are there are there, are there reasons to be in other sectors in addition to fintech and e-commerce? Uh, look, it, it it's a great question. I think fintech is still commanding um, you know good attention um, and and deservedly so. Um, I would say it's it's reduced, of course, um, because I think what you saw, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I think the word fintech, we have to be careful, right? Some companies that came out of the fintech boom were what I call fintech light. You know, they, they were really customer acquisition vehicles for banks rather than true innovators, people who were innovating the space. So what you saw was, someone who's just really good at spending money and grabbing consumers, but in the back was a bank who was really making all the money, right? Um, so, so today that's that shifted. I think the, the, the business models that are coming up now are, are true innovation, people really doing interesting work, um, but it's challenging, right? When the cost of capital goes up and you can't find cheap funding as a fintech company, it becomes challenging because some of them, the underlying product is the capital itself, right? And if you're not able to get competitive funding, then it becomes very difficult to sell your product. Um, 
I think food has been a huge bright spot in our region, right? And you saw a lot of great M&A deals happen in, in the food space. Um, and actually, when you look at the unit economics on food and food delivery in the region, they're, they're pretty robust. Um, people make quite a bit of money um, because the cost structure in the region is, is interesting in terms of delivery. Uh, people eat a lot. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, we get a lot delivered. Uh, it, it's been an interesting space. You know, I think e-commerce also has been interesting. People have made money in e-commerce. Um, and you're sort of having people start to relook at that sector again um, and say, well, you know, we might not do the Amazon of the Middle East. That's been done. But maybe there are certain verticals that are doing great, Right. Um, you know, think of eyewear, for example. I was involved with an eyewear company that, I mean, it's tremendous. They're doing phenomenal, great revenue. Uh, it's called Iowa. A very successful company that was able to build a, a multi-channel platform. Um, you know, uh, people doing furniture. You know, I'm involved in this other company called Homesmart. You know, they do, you know, they're the Wayfair of the region. Um, so now people are really looking at sort of saying, well, okay, maybe there are certain verticals within e-commerce that, that make sense that I want to look at. Um, so some of the lagging sectors have been that, you know, are getting a second look now are things like healthcare, um, you know, other sectors like uh, enterprise software. You know, now people are saying, well, okay, you know, the large companies have digitized, but all this long tail of smaller companies, they need to be digitized. So can we create software for them? You know, whether it's HR software, whether it's financial software. Um, so you're seeing a lot of enterprise and, and that's natural, right? Most of these markets as they develop, you know, the consumer goes first. You see a lot of innovation for consumers. And then later on, you see start seeing innovation for businesses. Um, you know, it's a, it's a harder uh, startup to, to create, but in a lot of ways it can be more sticky and, and more lucrative. So, so now we're, we're seeing some of that take hold in the market. So, uh, and I think that's what you'll see. You'll see different pockets of, of investment now into different business models, different sectors that are very sort of focused on the region and that makes sense for the region. Um, and and co companies that can go regional, I think that's key. Fascinating. And you you mentioned earlier the, the, the vacuum, the void, um, can't fully be filled by the sovereign wealth funds. Yet the PIF is extraordinarily active. Um, Absolutely. You know how, what's their role in the in the in the investment? Because it, it it really does seem again we we follow Saudi every day. It really seems like another fund was you know another fund was is set up. You know they just did one that's going to be handled through Cal's. There's so many. Right. Um, uh, Right. Is it? Is it? Is it? Is, I'm sure it's a positive role. Can you t speak a little to the role of PIF in the in the sector? Sure. So, so right now, um, I would say that the PIF and and other Saudi sort of pockets of sovereign capital have been probably the most positive influence on the ecosystem from a capital point of view. To date, you know, they came in uh, with programs that were serious, that were um, large, 
Um, they wrote substantial checks to local VC funds. And what was so great about the approach was it wasn't, oh, you can only invest in Saudi. It was, you have to invest in Saudi, but you can invest in the rest of the region. So it was very pragmatic, I thought. Um, they wanted you to invest in their local market, but they opened up the fund to say, look, we're, we understand that these funds need to be regional to be viable. So, so we're okay with that. So actually they've been very positive, right? Now, now PIF has a huge portfolio. VC is frankly only a small part of it. They're doing, you know, much bigger and global deals. I mean, I want to put this into perspective. What, what all of these governments are spending locally is a drop in the bucket compared to their investment globally. Um, but it's been a positive influence. I mean, they're, they're putting in serious money into these VC funds. But at the end of the day, they can't take 100% of each fund, right? They, they, need to, they need to take 10, 20% and then go ahead and raise the rest. Um, but from an ecosystem point of view, they've been hugely positive, right? They've done their role. I think the missing piece is not backing GPs again. I think it's how do I, and, and this has been done in, in other parts of the world, how do I go to that family office or that asset manager sitting in New York and say, look, I know we're not there yet as a region. And I know that it doesn't look as attractive from a risk reward profile as maybe India and China. But what if I gave you a little sweetener to invest? You know, what if I said for every dollar you invest, I'm going to put in another dollar and I'll take the first loss yeah. as an example, right? Um, or I'll lend you cheap money to invest in the funds at 3%. You, you know what I mean? I mean, there, there are mechanisms. I mean, there are mechanisms that, that one, one can, can do. So I think that's the missing piece. But in terms of their role, it's been positive. I think the UAE has also been positive. Um, Qatar is working on something. Um, you know, so there are pockets that are really doing that and trying to invest into these local markets. Um, you know, I think even Egypt has a program for its local VCs. Um, so I think governments for the most part have done quite a bit. Um, it, it's a question of, well, who's going to now fill the rest of the gap? Um, and I think what they were hoping was that local investors would follow their lead and come in a big way, right? And that just hasn't happened to the degree that I think they thought. Um, and, and there are a lot of reasons for that, right? Uh, you know, a lot of these family offices think very much the way the governments do, which is I make my money here. I'm, I'm already exposed here. I want to take my surplus out and invest in U.S. equities or, or European real estate or, or whatever it is, right? So, and, and that's fine. I think it's a legitimate reason. Um, so the uptick just hasn't been there from local investors. So who else is out there but international investors? So how do you entice them to come in, right? And honestly, they just ha haven't come in a big way. Uh, they, they just haven't. So we, we haven't seen it. I would say in my 20 years, I haven't seen them coming in a big way. Uh, we have not had a consistent, you know, international LP base that, consistently invest into these markets. It, it just has never developed. Yeah, 
Yeah, and it's interesting too. It's like the to get the local LPs involved in the ecosystem. Offering things like co-investment opportunities can work for some of the family offices that are investing in a similar space, um, you know, deep right. tech or anything like that. Um, and it's interesting. Just to, I just wanted to add to this because it, when you said that, it was really interesting about the PIF's role. It's they created Synable, right, which is, has sort of a mandate uh, locally, uh, sort of a mandate really anywhere. Their mandate is to make money to have the highest return. Correct. But they do locally Correct. and they do internationally. But then you have Jada Fund of Funds, which is just focused on the local. And so it was kind of a cool way of doing it, saying, you know, these are large funds. We're going to get and SVC. And, and, and SVC, SVC. I think SVC is funded by Munshaat and um, yes. and that. But I mean, so yeah, and then SVC is local focused, but they also have some regional interest. So they didn't just put all their eggs in one basket. And I think that was smart. Like you were saying. Yeah. No, yeah. it's very smart. And 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 you mentioned Sanabel. Sanabel, I think, has been mandated as more than just an investor. And you're 100% right, by the way. Sanabel is not investing into funds as a sort of development company. They, they want to make money, yeah. right? And, and actually, Sanabit has not invested in local funds. So they're, they, what they've done in the local environment is they have set up an accelerator to help build the ecosystem from the bottom up. So they have a successful accelerator with 500 Global. 500, yeah. They, they, they you know, they... They put through a lot of great entrepreneurs through that. It's a it's a fantastic program. It, it's you know known as one of the best in the region at this stage, and and again that's a regional program, right? It's based in Saudi, but you know entrepreneurs get accepted across across the region, and it's been a it's been a success, right? Um, but now the question is, well, who takes it after that, right? Who's who's going to fund these companies once they come out of these accelerators, and you do have seed and you do have series A funds. Um, you know, I, I don't know if we have enough yet, but we th that sort of part of the ecosystem is kind of there. But I think beyond that, it's slim pickings. Um, mm. You know, to raise a $20 million round, just to put it into perspective, it is not easy. And, and that's 20 million. For us in the US, 20 million is, right. is, is, is a is a small series A, right? Um, it doesn't make pitch books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, I mean, it's, it's uh, actually, it might even be seed, right? Yeah. So, um, but, but, you know, and what that's done is, is you, you have, you have a lack of lead investors, which I think you guys know lead investors are critical because I think there are plenty of followers. So once, once you have the lead, you know, there are plenty of investors to follow, but you don't have that critical lead that says, okay, I'll take 50% of the round and, and let's go. Um, and, and raising like that round can be super inefficient. You know, you can have a cap table that's 50 people and you're only at the series B. I mean, it's, it, 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 it can be that dramatic in, in some cases. So I think that's the real gap that needs to be filled. And that's a more difficult gap to fill because it's a larger one. You need, bigger funds. And I just don't know if, you know, sovereigns putting in half a billion, a billion dollars to do this is the right strategy. I mean, you need investor appetite. And, and Lucian said it, right? It's too early in the ecosystem to say, well, do we have replicable returns? Uh, you know, are there enough returns out there? It's a bit early. Uh, we haven't had the exits that maybe we should. Um, so it still needs support. And, and that's why I used the word fatal early on. You know, the US, eh, it's a blip on the screen. In a couple of years, we'll forget about all this. And, 
you know, we'll come roaring back and you'll have great rounds and so on and so forth. I, I worry that in, in emerging markets and, and especially in, in the MENA region, that this is going to hurt. You know, if, if we don't plug this gap and make sure that entrepreneurship continues and startups get funded, we might not have a story to tell in 10 years. And I'll leave a mark. Uh, right. Uh, you know, I, you Shinabel and and PIF. It's uh, interesting transition. I sent you a, an article, Amjad, from Crunchbase last month about Saudi investment in U.S. startups, and uh, it just sort of spiked last year in 2022, up 40 percent. You know, 32 funding deals, PIF, Shinabel, others are involved. This was over, you know, between 2019 and 2021, only 14 deals. Um, and this is, again, this is the mandate for Sanabal and others. you got to go find returns. A lot of them are coming to the U.S. And, Absolutely. And, uh, and do, you, is there any, do, you, do you have a take on that? Is there, are they looking for specific types or is this sort of across the board, things that are useful, they think are going to be useful to their transition? Uh, so, so I think a couple of things. I think one is, you know, the sovereign wealth funds being in the U.S. market is nothing new, right? Uh, I think it's new for venture. <laughs> um, and, and uh, you know, you probably rented from a sovereign wealth fund at some stage if you, if you had a building in New York, but you didn't even realize it was the KIA or the QIA or, right? So, so they've been investing in real estate, equities, bonds, of course, and, and private equity, you know, I, I tell my VC friend, listen, private equity has been coming here for 20 years. This is nothing new. Like, you know, because they, they think they found the new fountain of capital. I said, guys, the private equity guys have been here for 20 years coming to the region. Um, I mean, you know, Blackstone, Carlisle, KKR, they, they have they great LPs from the region um, and, and a lot of the sovereigns. So, so the, the U.S. market has always been a place that they feel very comfortable. Right, great laws, robust, great economy, lots of opportunities, great return. Um, so I think that's going to continue. What's new is that I think they're going into more innovative, disruptive areas, right? Like venture, which which is new, right? And that also coincided with venture itself growing, right? I mean, the biggest venture fund ten years ago was five hundred thousand, five hundred million dollars, which for a sovereign wealth fund is like no, thank you. I mean too small right yeah. today you have venture funds that are in the billions so so that also caught up to the sovereign wealth fund you know uh, ticket size so i think that's what you're seeing is this collision of okay funds have gotten to a certain size that makes sense um the sovereign wealth funds have an even bigger interest now to go into venture and riskier assets um and, and i just saw a great statistic um uh, that said if you look at the sovereign wealth funds today, the top three in 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 the uh, in the region, something like twenty five to thirty percent of their portfolio now is alternative assets. I mean that's that's high, right? These are these are these are sovereign wealth funds that used to invest in treasuries. Yeah, I mean their risk profile has been transformed it's dramatically, dramatically. And 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 my call, my call is that. In the next 10 years, we're going to see the rise of the sovereign wealth fund as an asset manager, you know, like, and, and, and a GP effectively. So, right. 
So they're, they're going to have amazing teams around the world. They're going to be cutting their own deals. Um, so I think, I think what's going to happen is they're going to reduce their GP relationships dramatically to those few that are very strategic and large. And they're going to do a lot of their direct investing um, with, with phenomenal talent and teams sitting in, you know, all over the world, China and the U.S. And you can see they're getting more sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah, you can see it happening a little bit with Aramco's I mean, Wyatt, yeah. Mubadala. I would argue yeah. Mubadala today, Mubadala today is, I don't want to say at par with some of the best GPs in the re, in, in the U.S., but it, the gap is closing, you know. And, and you know, they, they, they want to buy Fortress Investments. They cut a deal with Apollo to do credit um, recently. Um, so what, what you're seeing is, the sovereigns now are saying, wait a minute, why should we just be a passive player, give our capital to someone else? We, we have talent internally. We're building talent internally. We can hire people who are willing to work for us now. The world has changed. We're the, we're the ones that have the most capital to spend and the most exciting deals. We're willing to be more aggressive. We're willing to pay. Um, and I think you're seeing this kind of interesting transition into a more robust investor that's willing to cut deals and lead deals. We, we didn't see that before. Um, yeah. And I think that's going to continue. And it's going to continue. I think it's going to get dramatic, actually. I think you're going to see them build real capabilities, whether through acquisitions, whether through internal talent acquisition. They're going to build real teams. And, and I think what they see is that, why not? You know, we, we have the money. Um, we know what to do. Uh, we can build the the, the organizations. Um, they're just becoming a little bit more confident, I think, about what they could execute. Um, I, I believe I believe Piff Piff has opened up offices in uh, New York, London, Singapore, but they're aggressively staffing up the New York office. I think as their 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 initial foray into this into the, this absolutely. model that you're talking about. Absolutely, and and you know, Mobadela did it a long time ago, right? Mobadela set up a San Francisco office. Um, and look, I think, I think it's going to take time, right? They have to prove themselves. They have to, they have to entice, um, companies to come to them for capital. Um, I think they have to show that they're a value add investor. So they, they still have to build their track record, but it's going to happen. Right. Um, I mean, you know, you've been going to the region, you know, I mean, it's you know, hotels are full with startups and, and GPs with, with, you know, with, with bags waiting for money. Right. So, um, it, and, and I think, and I think they're realizing that, Hey, this is not stupid money anymore. Like this is smart money. Yeah. They expect a serious return. They want to cut deals that make sense for themselves. Um, you know, they're not willing to just to give you the, the, the bag of cash and say, charge me, you know, two and a half and 30 or whatever it is. I mean, I think, I think that's, you know, that's going to continue to decline. Um, you know, they're, they're going to be a partner rather than, than an investor. Um, and, and they're kind of already there with, with the big players, right? I mean, they're, they've been doing co-investment with the big guys for quite a bit of time. Um, and I think that they've learned from that. They've learned that, hey, there's interesting returns out there in the private market. And, you know, why not? Why can't we do it? Yeah. The PIF seems to be one step behind the Abu Dhabi model. Their New York office is equities mostly, 
but you can kind right. of see what's next. The issue, obviously, is, as you know, is going to be deal flow for these guys. Can they compete with the Sand Hill Road blue chip funds, right. you know, with right. that track record with the network and everything like that? So it's, 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 well, Lucian, it's interesting. You know what's interesting? I would argue that today is a great time for them to plug the hole because growth capital has completely declined. And if you're someone looking for, you know, a few hundred million dollars to, to you know, billion plus, where do you go today? And I mean, we, we just saw Mubadala close um, the Gitter deal, for example, in Turkey. You know, they were already an investor, but they led that round, $500 million, at a dramatically lower valuation. But Mubadala led. They didn't wait for some other investor to lead. So I think we're going to see more of that, right? That, and especially for the tickets where their capital is super competitive, just purely because of size. I mean, where else do you go, right? Um, so, but I agree with you. I think what, what they have to prove is, can you be value-add? Is, is it just money or is there more to this, right? And, and I think that takes building talent, building teams, um, you know, doing the hard work, which from what I can see, I, it looks like they're willing to do that. And, and, and again, some of it could be purely through acquisitions, right? I mean, um, you know, like, 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 like Mubeda is trying to do. Um, so we, we might end up seeing some really interesting mergers in the future. Who knows? <laughs> well, well, you're, you're a regular on the 966, so we would anticipate you be coming back to talk with us about <laughs> these amazing things. Well, well, I appreciate that. By the way, one, one interesting note is, um, the, Mubadala has taken it a step further, right? With, um, I believe that the, there was a release recently that they've actually creating an asset manager now, uh, or was it ADQ? I think one of the two sovereigns in in Abu Dhabi are actually creating an asset manager to to sell product to investors. So, so now I think they're taking it even a step further and saying, well, we've already built this mechanism that we're making money from, why don't we share it with others and make money off of it? So, right. So, you know, why not? I mean, if, if you end up building a world, world-class access to deals and you have great teams, you know, I, I could see that, you know, maybe, maybe uh, managing their money by become neutral at some stage where they're, they're not paying any fees because they're making enough revenues from third party capital. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're making third, they're getting money from third party capital and they're making returns. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine having access to Uber in its series A, series B, and you do a little pocket to your citizens? I mean, I, I would take it. Why not? You know, I mean, I mean, there could be opportunities, I think, to say, look, we've built this mechanism for the country. Why don't you guys share in that, share in that, in that, in that power, right? Um, I think that would be brilliant if they could pull off, you know, um, platforms where they can allow their citizens to participate in these great machines that they've built. Yeah. Just, I wanted to add to that too. I think it's interesting. I think what you said about these sovereigns competing with the sort of blue chip VCs and VCs that are all over or, or PE funds even is there's still a little bit of that stigma. Like there's still the Bloomberg article that comes out where it's like, Oh, they're taking Saudi sure. money. Here are the funds taking Saudi money. I think if things can continue to trend in the way that they're trending now, 
that will become either much less of a factor or not a factor at all. But there's still a little bit of that. I mean, if you're like the if you're the Uber and you have your choice, are you going to take the PR hit that might come with with money from the Middle East region? And and that's something that they may you know get over it's, sooner than later. But it's interesting. It, it's a good point, and I, but I think I think not all sovereigns are treated equally, right? I think you know today Mubadala doesn't get that kind of press, right? Unfortunately, yeah. Saudi gets that press. Um, you know, is it deserved? I don't know. I mean, I, probably not so much. But I think today, um, and you know how it is, political winds shift. <laughs> um, you know, 10 years from now, this might, you know, Sanabil might be like Mubadala, nobody cares. Uh, but, but I hear you that, I totally agree with you that today, there's still sort of that, oh, you know, you, you're taking that money. But I would say the people who are serious don't really care. They're like, if I'm going, I'm going to where the capital is, and if 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 that's what it's going to take to build my company, I'm I'm going to take that capital, right? I am. Um, I, I, I'm I'm interested that you ended at that point. I was laughing about Mohammed bin Salman talking about sports washing. He says, I don't really care if it adds one percent of my GDP. <laughs> terrific. And I, I feel. By the way, I don't I don't buy that sports washing thing. I mean, I think I think when you look at sports. If, if I looked at it purely as a as an investor, okay, like cold, in investment in sports hasn't been has it been lucrative? It's been hugely lucrative. Well, so, you know, the, you know, on the nine six six, we sort of dispensed with that sports washing, you know, argument a long yeah. time ago because there's other reasons for you doing this. But I think it, you know, to your point, I, I really do. It does seem to me. And we, look, we will live in a world with our Seussic review where like every eighth paragraph is, you know, about Jamal Khashoggi. Um, uh, and, you know, that's the way it is. But I, it just yeah. seems to me serious people have are well beyond those issues. Oh, um, 100%. I mean, I could tell you I'm going to FII in, in a couple of weeks. Everyone's going to be there, right? Yeah. Um, so let's not kid ourselves here. I think those who are serious about large deals, you know, that PIF is in the conversation, uh, you know, bankers, bankers today. I mean, I mean, you know, you would be um, not doing your job if you're going after a large deal and you didn't have PIF, Mobadala, QIA, KIA on top of your list to go visit, right? I mean, it would be silly. Um, so, uh, you know, sports to me is, is, is just one sector that mm -hmm. they feel has great returns. It does have benefits to what I call the double bottom line, which is it helps me financially, but it also helps me strategically. Like sports in Saudi, I mean, I don't, you know, for those who haven't visited Saudi, it's sports crazy. Like, yeah. Yeah. like I mean, it's people love sports. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense to, you know, bring sports to the country. It makes a lot of sense to participate in sports. And, and if I was, you know, uh, MBS and, and the Sovereign Wealth Fund, I would definitely invest in sports and do it heavily. Um, and, and frankly, it's, it's been a great investment for, for many, right? Qatar has done it. Uh, uh, Abu Dhabi has done it. So, uh, you know, I think, look, I think, I think people who say that are looking at a very small piece rather than the entire piece. Uh, but the reality is that it's a strategic sector like several others. Um, that they're going to continue to invest in. And again, my call is we're going to see them disrupt 
not only this industry, but maybe other industries where you needed large amounts of capital. And I think bankers right now are literally trying to be super creative to think about things to pitch the sovereign wealth funds of the Gulf. And, and rightly so. I mean, they're willing to be more aggressive. They're willing to be more assertive in their approach to investing. And they're willing to disrupt industries that, you know, you need few billion to do so. And where better to go? Um, so, yeah, I think we're going to see more of this. Venture capitalist and seasoned investment professional with extensive experience in VC and private equity markets, Mr. Amjad Ahmed. Thank you so much for joining us. Amjad, I will see you at the PIF, um, the FII. We'll have a cup of uh, Saudi coffee company uh, together or something. <laughs> awesome. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your time. This is Thank great. you both. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Lucian. That was our conversation with Amjad Ahmed. We appreciate his time, thank him for his time. And yeah, just uh, really knows his stuff and and really great to stay on top of this all important uh, sector in Saudi Arabia, which is entrepreneurship and the uh, ecosystem there. We were talking about it. He's terrific in terms of uh, integrating the macro and the micro and and doing it in layman's terms. I mean, I even understood this. So I'm, so, you know, that's a, that's a big compliment to, um, John, in terms That's, of conveying yeah. information. And he did it without pictures, which was really impressive. <laughs> Thank you, um, John, for educating Mr. Richard Wilson on the other side. <laughs> um, Richard, let's get to Yellow. What do you think? Yellow. Howdy. Six top storylines. <laughs> oh, we switched it up. Sorry. <laughs> yellow. Um, yes, yellow number, yellow number one. Saudi Arabia said on Monday it has decided to end light-touch oversight of its nuclear activities by the UN Atomic Watchdog and switch to full-blown safeguards, a change the agency has been demanding for years. Riyadh has yet to fire up its first nuclear reactor, allowing its program to still be monitored under the large capital small quantities protocol, SQP, an agreement with the International Atomic Energy Agency that exempts less advanced states from many reporting obligations and inspections. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi has been calling on the dozens of states that still have SQPs to amend or rescind them, calling them a, quote, weakness, unquote, in the global non-proliferation regime. The IAEA has for years been in talks with Riyadh on making the switch to a so-called comprehensive safeguards agreement for years. This is a uh, an issue that is very uh, complex, and um, you know I don't want to wade too far into this, but it seems to me that it would be fair if Saudi Arabia were to be able to use civilian nuclear fuel as part of its energy mix to meet demand, because they have an insane amount of demand coming on the horizon from its quickly growing population all across the country. We just talked about it in um, my one big thing on giga projects. And so why is it fair for other countries to have the opportunity to use nuclear power and Saudi Arabia to not? So we're seeing this uh, sort of drift into that direction. I think it is interesting in this article, it is mentioned that it's uh, Riyadh has not fired up its first nuclear reactor yet. Um, and it is still allowing its program to be monitored by the SQP. Um, but if it does, then it sort of elevates its status. So, you know, 
This is this is interesting, and this is something that's going to be talked about, I think, in the weeks to come. Uh, it's I think it's a it's a small but important step. Saudi Arabia is prepping itself, positioning itself to to develop a nuclear industry, and you know the one two the quote that one two three agreement that, so for example, U.S. has with um, the UAE. You know, they just doesn't feel fits their needs because they have uh, they have the ability, hopefully, to mine uranium and enrich it. And so it's going to be a sticking point. But, you know, if you're going to reach an agreement and part of the discussion with the normalization with Israel is Saudi Arabia wants U.S. Uh, at least the imprimatur or, you know, OK, or if not involvement with a, a uh, civilian uh, nuclear um, program uh, transparency's got to be there, and so this is a, this is a step in that direction. So in that regard, I think it's really positive, and they move into a different, more comprehensive safeguard agreement, and and that's all to the good if they want to get to their larger goal of developing a, a you know civilian nuclear uh, industry. Yep. Yella number two, Suda Peaks is Saudi Arabia's new luxury mountain destination opening in Asir in 2033. Spanning across 627 square kilometers, it will sit 3,015 meters above sea level on the highest mountain peak in Saudi and will have 2,700 keys, 1,336 residential units, over 30 attractions, and 80,000 square meters of commercial space. Suda Peaks will offer luxury hospitality services to over 2 million visitors throughout the year and will reflect traditional and architectural elements into its design. Love this. You know, is there anybody more on top of, of giga projects and contracting and anything than, than Knight Frank? Uh, you mean outside of the 966? No. Outside, outside of 966. <laughs> well, what's cool yeah, so the, uh, they just night. You one big thing was on on uh, Knight Frank's recent report on Giga projects and projects in the in Riyadh in the Western region. It doesn't include this, and I, I say that because this was just recently announced. But it's been a coming thing. We've had friends who worked on this the Sauda Peaks, the, the, the Sauda Development Agency, which is a, for the whole area. Uh, it's just things are moving so quickly; it's hard to keep up. And I also think it's interesting because one of the things we talked about in your one big thing is, is projections beyond 2030. And this is a, you know, a, a luxury mountain destination that's expected to come along in 2033, 30, 2033. So they're, you know, again, 2030 is just a point, uh, point on the trip, you know, a stopping point on the trip. And uh, they're all moving, you know, they're moving quickly in that direction. We've... Um... Asir is sort of like, to me, it seems like one of the new frontiers in general. They've been working on increasing interest and, you know, visits and investment into Asir, uh, in part because it's just the geography is completely different than what you would traditional traditionally think of uh, Saudi Arabia as having, or just is not like, you know, wildly shown outside of, of Saudi Arabia's mountainous. It's got a lot of trees. It's temperate. Um, the people from Asir are typically 
lighter skin colored, which is really interesting and have really light eyes. This is something that I learned fairly recently. And it's just, um, it's kind of its own, you know, region that's part of, of Saudi. And what's, uh, so I believe two guests we've had on the program that have originally been from uh, Asir have been, Dr. Saad al-Shafrani, I believe is from Asir originally. I could have that wrong. Gonna fact check that, um, and then uh, Dr. Fatima Al Hamlan as well has is originally from Asir. Just you know, it, it's its own sort of area in Riyadh, but it's I'm sorry in Saudi Arabia, but it's part of you know the fabric, and it's cool to see investment and development going on there. And I feel like you'll have Neom in the north with mountains and sort of more temperate climate, uh, and Trojina, which would be the sort of mountain resort, and then you have Asir, which is you know, in the South and is, you know, beautiful. So anyway, pretty, pretty cool. And, and good to see the investment, as we just discussed, go outside of the main cities and into these next uh, areas of Saudi Arabia. You know, I think I'm not certain, but Ahmed Charlie and Mustafa Fahmi from Wall of Sound Studio uh, may be f- originally from this year, the, but more to the point, and we could be all wrong on that. So uh, apologies, Ahmed and Mustafa, if, if I blew that. Um, you know, the Sierra is an internal destination. Lots of Saudis have summered in the Sierra because it's cooler, it's beautiful. So there's a habit there. So there's a it's a natural tourism, internal tourism destination. And um, you know, many you know kings for a long time had a summer summer have a summer palace there. Um, so uh, the habit is there, but you know, building out the infrastructure and the and the framework and the talent and the you know staff personnel to to accommodate a really large tourism industry is, is still to come. So this is very cool. Speaking of tourism, <laughs> nice segue here. <laughs> um, number three, as many as 500 leaders, sector experts and officials from 120 countries are expected to attend the World Tourism Day in Riyadh on September 27, 28. Um, World Tourism Day 2023 will be held under the slogan, quote, green tourism and investment, unquote. Saudi Arabia will be hosting the meeting for the first time. The kingdom was also elected as president of the Executive Council of the World Tourism Organization for the year 2023. Riyadh hosted the World Summit of World Travel and Tourism Council last year and also hosts Riyadh Regional Office of the World Tourism Organization in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, this event uh, was dramatically elevated with the visit of the Israeli tourism head to Saudi Arabia, which uh, was the first such high level visit or public high level, level visit in a while. And that's sort of happening in the context of the Saudi Israeli talks led by the US that's ongoing. Um, but I believe it's uh, his name is Minister Katz. I could have that wrong. Don't have it in front of me. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. But he's there uh, for two days, which is kind of kind of rad. And also, uh, yeah, I mean, tourism is and I think really it was said so well by His Royal Highness the Crown Prince in that interview last week, which again, as I noted then, and we're going to be talking about that for weeks and months to come because it was newsmaking. But, you know, he basically said, well, come see it for yourself. And I feel like now Saudi Arabia is in a position to say, we've got a lot of stuff going on here. Come see it for yourself. So, yeah, very, very cool. I like this one because it combines, you know, Saudi Arabia obviously is going very hard on tourism and making the, 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 the country attractive and easily accessed and it's working. You know, the numbers are, are, are flying. They're really growing quickly combined with its, 
interest and activity and essentially becoming, it seems like the number one convener in the world. I mean, it hosts so many things. And this is yet another one. I also would like to add that if you're a listener to the, to the 966, you would know, because it was part of it, it was a yellow, I don't know how long ago, that Saudi Arabia had been elected president of the Executive Council of the World Tourism Organization for 2023. Just another little factoid that you would have picked up listening here. Yella number four, Saudi traffic authorities have said a visitor is allowed to use a foreign driving license for one year in the kingdom, which is seeking to attract more tourists as a part of its efforts to diversify its oil reliant economy. The visitor can use the international driver's license or a valid foreign license for one year from the date entering the kingdom or the expiry date of the license, depending on the nearest date. The Saudi General Traffic Department said in recent years, the kingdom has offered a set of facilities designed to draw more foreign tourists to the country. They include the issuance of tourist visas on arrival or online for citizens of several nationalities. Um, this is just quickly, Richard, this is very good. There is this does not move the needle for me on the desire to drive in Saudi. <laughs> I actually do. I want to drive and I don't necessarily want to drive in Riyadh, but like I'd love to I'd love to head off into the hinterlands and, and, uh, you know, and go up the coast somewhere or, you know, definitely would like to do that or go down South or North anywhere. You know, uh, I don't really like, you know, driving in Riyadh, you know, to be honest, driving in Riyadh is, is not the issue. Parking in Riyadh is the issue. Um, mm, yeah. and the, uh, with the other thing, this is yet another thing, uh, that you don't have to worry about when you go to Saudi Arabia. You know, you just you don't. This isn't. This is. This is. You know, one one more obstacle removed. And I think it's great. Yeah, I I I just slightly disagree with you. I think driving in Riyadh is still a, is still a deal. Um, it has gotten not just better anecdotally over just the last few years, but statistically, deaths are way down from accidents. A accidents are way down in general. Um, you know, because you have Sahar, you have sort of enforcement really been being taken seriously. You have really good traffic control efforts by local authorities. So they've worked on that a little bit. But the sort of like social give and take of merging and different speeds and stuff is just, you know, like, I mean, maybe if I didn't care about the car, I was I was driving, well, getting dinged. It's a rental. Yeah, sure. Yeah. OK, so then, yeah, you know, in that case, you know, what else uh, is way down? is i mean when i first went there i mean you'd they'd be you'd be all lined up at a at a big intersection and i don't know if you can measure you know time in many nanoseconds or whatever but the minute a light turned green even before that people were honking their horn <clears throat> i mean you know you know 15 rows back it'd be like uh, uh, uh. Um, it's a little more civilized. You're, I, I, it's not ideal. It's not ideal, but you know, it's part of it is, I guess it's part of the challenge. Um, but again, it's, you know, do, if you had a car, what, what do you do with it when you get to a place? You just kind of like do the park job where it's like half on the curb, you know, it's right. like <laughs> you just hope there's a spot. Well, and then you're like dealing with like a, the cleanliness of the car. It's so like dusty in a lot of places where you're like, all right, like, I, I don't know. It's just I really you know what? I, and I was just thinking about this as you were talking. I don't really like driving at all anywhere anyway. Uh, so it's not, go. you know, I'm not like a. I, you know, I'm not a car guy. I would vastly prefer to just be in the back, you know, 
listening to the 966 on my phone. Well, <laughs> and the beauty of that is it that has returned all sorts of fantastic B-roll for the 966. Indeed, indeed. And in, uh, I will be there in a few days. I hope to get some more, uh, depending <laughs> on the cleanliness of the windows of the back seats of the Ubers that I will be in. Um, but yeah, uh, for sure. And it again, I should emphasize, it has gotten safer um, to drive. It really has. It has. Um, I think actually having women on the road finally calmed all the guys down a little bit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and it, you know, it's funny because you can see traffic. This is not really related to the driver's license, but you can see traffic getting better over there actually, despite population growth. It seems like it's going in the other direction in the U S I feel like it's just hopeless. Um, so anyway, um, anecdotal perception there. Uh, this is Yella number five. Oh, this yes. is me then. Um, yes. Yeah, number five, in a significant move toward economic diversification, revolutionizing the national transportation landscape, the Economic Cities and Special Zones Authority has granted Lucid Motors a permit to operate a manufacturing unit in King Abdullah Economic City. The mega city has a ready built residential infrastructure for the future employees of Lucid Motors, which includes schools and recreational entertainment avenues. Faisal Sultan, Lucid Vice President and Middle East Managing Director said, quote, as the kingdom's first ever e-vehicle manufacturing facility and Lucid's first international plant, the, the, the facility will pave the way and set the standard for the automotive industry. We look forward to attracting, training and retaining a brand new workforce of automotive professionals, unquote. Yeah, go Lucid. Um... And, and, and good for the King Abdullah Economic City as well. I mean, this is, this is going to be big for them. This is going to be a, a big driver in the local economy. This is, this is a big deal. I was at uh, K, King Abdullah Economic City in March, and it's an impressive structure. And it's kind of cool. It's got a train station right there. So you can get there from Jeddah quite easily. Um, you know, Dr. Mohammed al-Sheikh with uh, al-Salam, uh, was was on the show and I went around with him and we were looking at where Lucid would be. I think it's interesting. And this is one of the, one of the challenges of this show. We tend to be right. You know, when something gets announced, we're right on top of it. It's good to come back and note when it actually gets implemented. So this is a big day because this was announced sometime back. Lucid was coming into cake. It's going to be there. It's really cool to see him get started. Uh, so that's exciting. Also home to the kingdom's number one golf course, uh, the Royal Greens. So yeah, someday, someday, it's one day, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I don't see that day anytime soon. Unfortunately, someday. I got really sad thinking about how little golf I'm going to be playing in the next eight months. <laughs> but that's okay. We still <laughs> had the nine six six outing, which was super fun, and we'll have it again next year. So that's <laughs> something to look forward to. <laughs> yes. um, yellow number. Six. Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan Al Saud addressed the UN General Assembly on the 24th of September in a speech calling for the establishment of a Palestinian state and a, quote, just comprehensive solution to the Palestinian issue, end quote, while criticizing Israel for its ongoing illegal building of Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank. Quote, security in the Middle East region requires the acceleration of 
a just comprehensive solution to the Palestinian issue. The solution must be based on resolutions in the international arena and must bring about a peace that allows the Palestinian people to have an independent state based on the 1967 borders with East Jerusalem as its capital, end quote, the Saudi foreign minister said. Uh, we included this, I think, because it's important messaging. And this was something Saudi Arabia has been very consistent about. And I think they've made a point of reiterating it and reconfirming it in light of recent, you know, runaway speculation about Israel's Saudi normalization. And, you know, Saudi Arabia has taken uh, every opportunity to, to reaffirm, say, look, we have some we have some hard and fast expectations about anything involved with this discussion. So it's important for the foreign minister, you know, to go at the UN General Assembly to reaffirm their position on this. And that it's not it's not something that they're just going to, you know, oh, by the way, we'll just give that away. That's something they feel we don't know. Let's say if let's say a normalization agreement is reached sometime in the future, as I as I alluded to, speculation is way ahead of where it actually is, I think. But, um, you know, Saudi Arabia will want real. Uh, you know, verifiable action on uh, the Palestinian people. And that's the, you know, it's, that's always been, that has not changed. The Saudis have been very consistent on that. So it's, it, this would be such a major breakthrough. I mean, you know, I don't know this, it just, we're, we're obviously going to watch, and I'm glad we, we have this for, for the same reason you noted, because we're, we're on top of it. And it's kind of good to just know where the Saudis stand, and that has not changed since the King Abdullah Peace Initiative when it was originally conceived. So it just, it's, you know. What, what's fascinating, and we don't need to spend too much time, is we don't know where the Saudis stand. And what, but what, I, what they have to, and this is something we talked about on uh, your one big thing last week on uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's interview with Fox, is they're sitting in a really nice position where they can take all offers, they can have discussions without making any commitments. And if it falls through, it falls through. You know, if if somebody comes through with a you know they, uh, an overwhelmingly uh, positive you know uh, offer or, or agreement proposal, yeah, they'll think about it. But they don't have to do anything. But it's awfully nice to be having these conversations with the U.S. and obviously uh, you know Sub Rosa and and uh, not official diplomatic with with Israel. But um, you know, again, they're talking with everybody. They want to talk with everybody. Uh, and that doesn't mean they're going to do something, but they're talking with everybody. They are in a good position. The crown prince was physically in a good position on Sindala Island for that interview. That was a really stunning sort of back background to everything that was strategically done, of course, but that was one of the things that we talked about last week and it just was interesting. And, and, you know, that's not far from, you know, like everything else in the region, it's not far from Israel. And Niam is very close to Israel as well. So there is Saudi interest in, you know, uh, what's happening here, but they do have a very good position. So I mean, it's just interesting stuff. We've had, we've talked about it a lot in the, on the 966 over the previous year or so, various experts, uh, as well as um, what Dr. Aziz Al-Gashayan. Richard, this is cool though, because it's like, it's, it's happening. So anyway, good stuff. 
Um, I think that puts a bow on it for episode 105 with it does with 106 on the horizon. And maybe this will help <laughs> us remember just by mentioning it the next time. Maybe it'll confuse us. I don't know. Um, but, <laughs> I think, uh, I think it. I'm going with the latter. <laughs> we should come out next week and say episode 104. <laughs> just I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> As if anyone cares what episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Richard, thanks very much. Awesome. Thank you.